It's time for the Talent Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2, a nationwide leader in background checks and employment screening solutions. People G2 gives their clients access to the best human capital management and due diligence tools available. They are dedicated to helping their clients with all of their people-related decisions. To learn more, go to www.peopleg2.com. Talent Talk centers on the topics of talent recruitment and management, leadership development, company culture, and employee engagement. These are all timely topics for CEOs, entrepreneurs, HR professionals, and business leaders. We hope that as you tune in to listen each week, whether to the live broadcast or to the podcast on iTunes or iHeartRadio, that you hear something you can take away that will help you grow and impact your career in a positive way. And now, here's the host of the Talent Talk Radio Show, the founder and CEO of People G2, Chris Dyer. Good afternoon and welcome to Talent Talk. It's Tuesday and we are live here at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time to talk to two guests about talent, find out what they're doing to think about managing their talent, how they're making themselves be more talented every day. And it's really that conversation, right? It's that desire to want to know more about what people are doing with talent that has driven us to have this show for so many years and have so many spectacular guests come and talk about so many of their stories, the lessons and things that they're doing that we can take back and try in our own companies or uh, on ourselves to to try to improve it and get better every day. Uh, so many of those stories uh, have been so memorable that we threw them in my first book, The Power of Company Culture. I'd uh, love to have you check that out wherever you buy books. And it really is that a culmination of my story as well as so many stories from the show. So I hope you can check that out. As I mentioned, Talent Talk is live here every Tuesday, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. But most of you get us after the fact. You grab us on the podcast, on iTunes, uh, maybe iHeartRadio, Stitcher. Maybe you go to talenttalkradio.com, which is we've got it all there. You can subscribe through Podbean. So, you know, it's uh, where most of you come in and we have, I think, about 10,000 downloads a day, which is fantastic. So millions of downloads a year of those of you coming in, listening to shows. So, Love to hear your thoughts on those, uh, make your comments, and, you know, send us your guest suggestions or even be a part of the conversation. Uh, We'd love to do that through Twitter. So if you are uh, at any time, if you'd like to interact with what we talked about today, go to PeopleG2 or follow that hashtag Talent Talk. My social media maven, Sarah, will feed me me, uh, and you the best one-liners, the best little tidbits, the links to books and things that we talked about. And if you have a question live, she'll even try to feed me that in uh, if you are listening live and we can try to ask your question on air. So um, we've had some really great suggestions from our listeners and some really great uh, even guest suggestions. So keep those coming. All right. My guests today include Alex Shlinsky, uh, founder of uh, Prospecting on Demand. And then we'll bring in Scott Miller. He's the executive vice president of thought leadership at Franklin Covey. Uh, and Scott will join me in the second half of the show. But let's go ahead and get things started and bring in my first guest. Alex, welcome to the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, really appreciate you. Hope everyone is doing absolutely fantastic today. Yeah, um, and so it's been a good uh, Tuesday. So why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself? What uh, what makes you tick? What are you working on? And and you know what's important for us to know here for our conversation today? Love it. Well, I appreciate that very much. And thanks for the platform. I'm excited to be here. Like I said. So yeah, my name is Alex Linsky. You, you by the way, you you did the name perfectly. A lot of people screwed up. So it was perfect good, good. there. 
So I run an online coaching company helping online coaches and marketing agencies scale their business. What I help them do essentially is go from a freelance job to becoming the CEO of the seven-figure program. Uh, I did this myself with my beautiful wife, which we'll talk about here in just a second, where I created from 20 years old till now, when I'm 28, uh, I created a seven-figure marketing agency for personal injury attorneys. But now I get to spend most of my time coaching other agency owners to scale their business and build company culture. It's funny that you talk so much about culture because we actually have our main uh, motto for our company is all about culture and the seven elements for culture, which we can talk about today as well. So that's what I do. Well, that's great. So maybe we could kind of stock up, uh, excuse me, uh, start to talk about, you know, how you manage your team, uh, especially if you've got a team of these sort of A plus and uh, bits of talent, you know, bringing in the right people and the best people, you know, what are some of the things you're doing to keep them motivated uh, and to keep them with your organization? Love that question. One of the things that we do that's really important is we try to provide them with this idea of the Knights of the Round Table. While, yes, the leadership team in Prospecting On Demand will end up making the decision, we want everyone to feel like they're not following marching orders, but that their voice and the things that they want to implement or optimize matter. So what we do specifically is two different things. For personal uh, development and ensuring that they stay motivated to work with us ongoing so we don't deal with that churn that so many companies struggle with, what we do is we have a monthly dream board meeting where we essentially go through each person in the company. We have eight people in the company right now, and we spend time in this call, usually about an hour and a half to two hours, where we talk about strictly personal goals and how the company, POD, can facilitate those personal goals. It creates an incredible synergy with the team. It gets everyone motivated to support each other. And it also makes it a little bit more personal, which really makes us more efficient and more effective in our business every single day. The other thing that we do for our business's efficiency and effectiveness is we have quarterly reviews and weekly calls. So essentially what we do in the quarterly reviews is talk about KPIs, key performance indicators, for each person in the company, whether it's, like you said, your social media maven, Sarah, or someone on my team that's a tech expert like John. And we go through what their major jobs and responsibilities were for that month or quarter and identify whether or not we were satisfied with the result of the, of the actual uh, job responsibility and their opinion on how we can make the process more efficient and effective the next time we do it. So we create standard operating procedures through this process, which makes us more efficient and effective. We also have a very open door policy. We share our revenues with everyone on the team. I know that's not super common, but that's our model because we believe in full transparency. We want people on our team to feel comfortable to say, I want to make more money by doing this because we want them to grow within the company as opposed to feeling that they're pigeonholed in something. So those are some of the key elements that we incorporate. So you're really hitting some of the key things that we do see with great cultures. And so transparency is one of them. And you kind of hit that in two ways. I mean, you're both in what is everyone really thinking about, dreaming about? What are, what are they setting their goals around personally and professionally? And, and that's, that's where a lot of transparency comes and understanding where everybody's at and kind of where they're headed. Um, but then to also share your financials to talk about where everybody's really at and how are we doing and, and where are we falling short or where are we doing well? 
is information that most employees don't know. And so, you know, they, there's often this kind of rub between the average employee, maybe leadership, where they're saying, I have this all these great ideas and I want to do all these things and no one's listening to me or they're not taking it seriously. But maybe they don't know that they're sort of asking the company to, to try a new idea in a, in a business unit that's failing, that they're planning on getting rid of in a year anyways. And so you're trying to, you know, spark some new idea in a in a sinking ship, essentially. But if you know where you're making, the company's making its money, where it's doing well, you can sort of focus your efforts, your ideas, your 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 innovation, right, around what's working. And and so we can't expect our people to know that. We can't expect them to have great ideas in, in the right places at the right time if they don't know what's going on, if they don't know what our hopes and dreams are, if they don't know what everyone else's hopes and dreams are, right? So it kind of sounds like you, you, you guys have come up with a pretty good scheduled way to to make sure that that's coming up in the organization and that's coming up really well so that's really great to hear absolutely we believe strongly in radical transparency and i think a lot of companies are afraid to share but when you do a fear audit which we talk about a lot with our clients where you break down what that fear actually is because we so often allow like singular words to define such a large subset of emotions or feelings or reactions or thoughts Instead, when we start breaking it down, what are you afraid of if your team knows how much someone's getting paid or how much your revenue is bringing in or how much your profit is? And there's no real uh, you know, issue with having that type of transparency other than fear of something getting out. But I prefer the idea of radical transparency in order for the team as an organism together to grow. Instead of the company being my brainchild or my wife's brainchild, it becomes all of our child, right? It becomes everyone's. Uh, singular mission to grow together, and it really allows for uh, independence in the company as you want to scale and grow into your own role as opposed to being pigeonholed, and we think that's absolutely critical. Yeah, and, and so often fear and the things that people are worried about come from them filling in the gaps, right? So they know a little bit of information, but they don't know the whole story. They don't have all of the data, and so they're, own, they're left to fig- to, to sort of Guess right, and often we guess wrong. We guess uh, we go into our worst fears, uh, into the worst possible explanations of what something could be. And this is usually what I kind of help when I work with companies try to get them to understand that even if they don't like all the information that they're having to share by being radically transparent, they're ensuring that everyone is making conclusions and on the same page and and at least what they're all on a level playing field instead of trying to you know circumvent everybody's uh, i guess sort of crazy conclusions right correct exactly so uh, you know we've sort of talked about the, the culture part of it you know the other part of having a successful business is also to have you know people excited about your your product or your service and uh, so i wanted to ask you how do you engage you know, sort of a tribe of fans online. Absolutely. Very, very important to me. In fact, I would say, like, there's a difference between, like, a personal tribe and a company tribe. Um, So the prospecting on demand team, we utilize, like, very specific language that captures the audience in a unique way, specifically utilizing the, the family moniker. As you are fully aware, and and a lot of your listeners will be aware, this is like a very common capitalist tactic to try to get inside of someone by expressing like, oh, we're family, but they don't really match all the values of family. And we do as best as we possibly can to treat not only our team like family, but our clients like family, because they're investing and trusting with us, you know, their, their most precious resources. And when I say most precious resource, I think a lot of people think, 
you know, oh yeah, they're investing a lot of finances. Frankly, I don't care about the finances. Money comes and goes, right? But the most valuable resource we have is our time. It's the only non-renewable resource that we cannot buy more of. So when someone is providing me with their time and we're providing with our time, uh, it's absolutely critical that we treat them like as we would as we would with our own family. And, and that's what we really, really focus on. That's why we go by the POD family. That's our most common moniker. And we go with the, the culture aspect to build something that's bigger than an individual. And that creates a tribe in and of itself because a family and a culture inherently is not a singular person. It's not independent. It's the sum of all its parts. It's all of the people. So the way that we do that is we have really strong uh, positioning online in all of our coaches' online profiles. So myself, Brian Downard, my wife, Shara Schlinski, we do uh, online coaching and mentorship. We run ads on Facebook. We have our own Facebook group. We post videos and content online of unique things. Like I'll give you an example here that you might find funny. We do what we call the Hot Wing Hotline. So once a month, we will buy the hottest wings from Buffalo Wild Wings, and we'll go on live on Facebook with our whole community, and we will ask them to give us leads so we can cold call for them to show them that we're willing to step up to the plate and do what we ask them to do, and we'll call these businesses and try to book a sales appointment. And if we do, they win. And if we don't, we eat the hottest hot wing available at Blazing at Buffalo Wild Wings, the Blazing Hot Wings. And it's fun and unique content that is a pattern interrupt, engages people, but is also incredibly inspiring and also entertaining and educational. And that's the way that we build out our tribes. Yeah, that's great. That's a fun way, right? Sort of finding a different way to connect with people and putting your money where your mouth is, or I guess where your hot sauce is. So, um, (laughs) you know, you know, one of the things I did want to ask you, you've mentioned your wife now a couple times and, uh, you know, I've had businesses where I've had family in there, uh, never a business with my wife, uh, but with family and, and things. So how has that been for you, you know, working with your significant other and having someone, you know, that's in your business, that's also in your life 24 hours a day? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, a little bit of background, just for clarity's sake, the way that I started this company is actually, I didn't even know I had a marketing agency for four years. When I was in college, I went to the University of Central Florida for psychology alongside my wife as well. We were not married yet, but we were dating at that time. She was being a, she had a waitress job and I was getting paid on the side by a couple attorneys just to post them on Facebook before I ever knew what social media marketing was. And after we had graduated, uh, we had started to see the opportunity of this business become like an actual company. And as I started generating more clients and requiring more fulfillment, I started to realize I can't do this by myself. And because, frankly, I was a neophyte as an entrepreneur, the easiest thing to do is tell my beautiful wife, stop working at this restaurant and start helping me post on Facebook for these people. And it kind of just snowballed from there. No question about it. It was a massive challenge. It was extremely difficult. There still are challenges. But I think what we learned is similar to a relationship in general and especially a business relationship Communication is absolutely key, and also having boundaries is very, very important. So in our business and in our personal life, we ensure that we don't, we first of all, don't speak certain language to each other because, you know, getting tempered quickly is very common in in business, and we try very, very hard to be uh, appropriate and fair, treating each other as husband and wife first over business partners uh, second, Um, and we have very strict boundaries on how we communicate and also when and where we're working in the house because we have two different home offices as well. And that's created a lot of growth and uh, opportunity both in our personal relationship but also in our business relationship. It creates an incredible 
uh, atmosphere of that family moniker that I was bringing up before because we work together. Uh, and it makes the process a lot more enjoyable. Does that mean every single day it's, it's easy or, or fantastic all the time? No, I, I think that would be me being facetious if that's the case. It, it's just not. But I think the, the risks are worth the rewards. And maybe it's not for everyone. But I think the biggest key, if I was to synthesize or funnel this down, would be very simply having very clear boundaries uh, of what is okay and what isn't and how you communicate on something that maybe you might disagree on. Uh, and, of course, just like in any business, having immense clarity, immense clarity on your roles. That is very important. Well, and that's true for, for anyone working for you or anybody who's a business partner with you, but I guess even more important if it's your spouse because, like you said, it's, uh, you know, if you have a disagreement with someone at work, you can go home and cool off and come back <laughs> the next day and maybe get it worked out. But if you have to go home with that person you just got an argument with, that's a little bit different. So <laughs> Exactly, exactly. We always make sure to have those boundaries, though. If you need space, like we're human beings. Everyone needs space and, you know, a, a three- to five-minute, you know, heated conversation doesn't change the fact of a decade-long, you know, love and growth. We're human beings, right? So we give a, we give ourselves some slack, and we work on being better husband and wife every day, and better business partners every day. So one of the things that my company does that I think we do really well, and we've been recognized for, is, is sort of the way we curate our team meetings, right? And so we really run our business through the way in which our teams meet. Um, and that's one of the ways that we really drive culture, we drive a, a results, we drive efficiency and respect to everyone's time. Um, tell me about your team meetings. What does that look like and how are you using it to increase effectiveness? Love it. So I have three specific team meetings that we go through. I already shared one of them, which is like the team meeting, the, the dream huddle essentially is what we call it. Then we have uh, a revenue team meeting. So we do this every week and basically we recap the current revenue and financials for this month. Are we on pace to hit the monthly goal? What are RGOs, which is what are our revenue generating opportunities that we have currently to hit those goals? And we make sure we hit those numbers. So for example, we always like working backwards. If we're trying to hit 10,000 and the goal to hit 10,000 is to have five clients pay us 2,000. If we need five clients, that means we need 10 sales calls because we'll close 50%, et cetera. So we move backwards. This is part of our revenue uh, team meeting that we do every week on Monday. Um, then we review last week's agenda items from the revenue team meeting, and we have someone on our team that holds us accountable to it, making sure that the tasks that are important to have been done are completed. We use Kanban Flow. Many people use Monday or Trello or Asana for kind of those task management. It's not about the tool, frankly. It's, it's really about the implementation of the tool. I think that's very important to note. Um, then we review any major bottlenecks or progress where everyone on the team has the ability to express themselves. Uh, without any, you know, risk of feeling uh, persecuted against. It's very important. And the next action steps. And usually the revenue meeting is about 45 minutes long. And that's a really, really important meeting that we do every single week. Everyone on the team is invited from the, the you know, lowest person on the totem pole in terms of revenue to the CEO of the company. The next thing that we do is the client success meeting. And I think if more teams and companies would implement this, it'd be absolutely vital. Now, not everyone on the team comes to this meeting. It's very specific to the people on the fulfillment side of the business, meaning the people that actually do the, the coaching or uh, advertising, et cetera. And on that meeting, essentially what we do is a red, yellow, green audit. This is kind of our company's way to identify where our clients stand. We always want our clients to be in green, meaning in a good uh, spot in their business and happy and satisfied with working with us. Yellow means kind of on shaky ground and we need to move them back to green. 
That means they're threatening or want to leave, and we need to do everything we can to try to salvage the business if possible. Most, more than likely, it's not going to be. And that's essentially the client success meeting we do. We go through each client that we have, both companies prospecting on demand and Sky Social Media, which is the marketing agency. Those are two of the main meetings that we do every single week. Uh, and we find them to be heavily effective and efficient for what we're trying to accomplish every month. Well, that's great. And I, I'm sure the other part of your business, which like mine, uh, we're both have, you know, remote or virtual uh, employees and are sort of running our company that way. And, um, you know, all of a sudden here with COVID, everybody ran home to work and said, oh, this actually works. And we all said, yeah, we know. <laughs> <laughs> We've been doing it. It's been great. So uh, what, what are some of the things you you do that maybe are specific to having a virtual business, uh, especially around yeah, culture? So, yeah, it, it's super interesting that you bring this up because when kind of the pandemic started, you know, I saw so many of my personal friends who are in the, you know, uh, the, the space where they're not normally virtual and now they have to go and become virtual and it's it's so hard in corporate America to do that. Um, and now suddenly they have to like, you know, juggle their kids and, and be at home and it's a big challenge. And I think we have a huge advantage obviously because we've already been running this business uh, virtually for the last almost decade, basically eight years. Essentially the biggest thing that we do is that we do Zoom meetings and we request everyone on the Zoom meeting to have their camera on. Uh, there's a joke that we have um, in our company which is normalize looking crappy on Zoom. Because we have this uh, feeling that a lot of people in the virtual world, in Zoom, they when they go to an office, they do their makeup or they, you know, get all snazzy dressed. And we're saying, look, if you feel more comfortable in your the way that you're dressed right now, we don't care about that. It's okay, but we'd like to see each other face to face. So that's become a really important creed of our company that we really want to see you face to face, unless you're like totally sick or something like that. So that's something very specific that we do to try to increase and, and continue the company culture, always seeing each other face to face. All of our client meetings are through Zoom as well. Again, we request them to be face to face. We don't force them. The company like team, we, we pretty much force uh, everyone to use their you know, their, their cameras specifically. But I would say those are kind of the main elements. Other than that, it, it's, it's hard to differentiate what's really changed in the pandemic than to now, other than uh, it seems like it's more common than ever to be virtual. Yeah, it, it's interesting that you bring up that sort of, you know, push for having everyone on video. And in my company, everyone's just on video. It's expected. And we have these things, we call, we call it a no mascara day. If you want to have a no mascara day, like you just don't want to, you look terrible, you feel terrible, you just don't want to be seen. We're okay with that every once in a while, exactly. as long as you're not, exactly. you know, overdoing it. And we don't like ask them to prove it. We just sort of take their word for it. I think, you know, <laughs> of course, of course. And uh, that would be and, kind of counterintuitive to a culture if you ask them, right? <laughs> right, right. Um, but I, I've been on, I was recently on a training, uh, with like 15 people. They asked me to come in and do a training for their company and every single person had their camera off and they would only turn it on maybe when they were speaking and it was driving me nuts. Cause I could, they could see me and I couldn't see them. I couldn't tell if they were engaged. I couldn't tell if I was hit, you know, reaching them or not. Cause I can make adjustments if I see people don't look particularly interested. You know I mean? I can kind of curate what's happening for a, a training and I, it was driving me crazy and i realized how much we rely on that internally but how much how little they did so it really is important if you those of you who are listening out there make sure people are on video it's really important um alex i really appreciate you being here today i want to make sure we ask you an important question and that is how can people get a hold of you if they're interested in finding more about you and your business and maybe want to work with you 
Yeah, I appreciate that a lot. I think the easiest way is going to prospectingondemand.com, or you can find me on Facebook. That's really where I post most of my content. I post content every single day on Facebook, uh, entertaining and educational and uh, trying to really stand out from the crowd. Sometimes, uh, you know, I, I, I might say some controversial things in the business side of things, but I'm, I always mean right uh, and mean well and, and try to do my best to support the people as, as best as I can. Um, and that's, I would say, the best place to reach me. All right, well, Alex, again, really appreciate you being on the show. Hopefully we'll have you back at some point. Give us an update on everything you're doing. And uh, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for the time. I really appreciate it. And to all the listeners as well, thank you so much for giving us the time here today. Stay safe out there. All right, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and we're right back with my second guest, Scott Miller. Imagine buying a newspaper and discovering that the news you're reading is six months old. There isn't much that stays the same for six months. And the same thing goes for background checks. In a time when so much outdated information is being passed around, it's good to know that PeopleG2 offers something different. At PeopleG2, we provide today's intelligence, not yesterday's news. Our value-added approach offers you a fully FCRA-compliant solution that includes up-to-the-minute information. By combining industry-leading technology with old-school human investigation, PeopleG2 is able to give you information that is accurate right now, delivered quickly to our online system, or integrated with your HR system. So ask yourself, are you comfortable working with old news? Or are you ready for a different kind of background check company? Visit PeopleG2.com or call 800-630-2880. That's 800-630-2880 or PeopleG2.com. Welcome back to the Talent Talk Radio Show. In case you missed my first guest, Alex Schlinski. Um, we'll have his uh, interview as well as one we're just about to do here in a couple weeks up on talenttalkradio.com. If you subscribe there to Podbean or if you subscribe to iTunes or find us on Stitcher, wherever you go and just subscribe, you'll make sure you won't miss this episode or future episodes as they become available. So love to have you be a part of that group of people that are downloading every single day and listening, interacting and sharing the stories that our such our fantastic guests are always giving us. So my next guest is Scott Miller. He's the executive vice president of thought leadership at Franklin Covey. Uh, don't forget to tweet your questions to us right now. If you're listening live or after the fact, feel free to give us your comments, your suggestions. Just follow at PeopleG2 or use that hashtag, all one word, talent talk, and you'll find everything you need. So uh, let's go ahead and bring in Scott. Scott, welcome to the show today. Uh, and I'm having a little bit of a hard time hearing you. I'm not sure if uh, we need to make an adjustment on our end. Are we good now? There we yeah, go. I think that's Fantastic. for me. Hi, Chris. There we go. It was a little mistake on our end. We got it fixed. So, hi, Scott. Uh, tell us about yourself. What's important for us to know? And what are you doing over there at uh, Franklin Covey? Well, let's see. What's most important is I'm a father of three boys, six, eight, and ten. That's my big purpose in life. I've been married for 11 years, live in Salt Lake City. I'm 52. I serve as the Executive Vice President of Thought Leadership for the Franklin Covey Company, coming into my 25th year with that company. I uh, authored a few books, host a podcast like yourself, write an article for Inc. Magazine, and just trying to help people not make some of the same leadership mistakes I made on my own journey. Well, it sounds like we're going to have a good conversation then because uh, we have a lot to talk about. I have three kids as well, so we could probably just do an hour on that, but that might not be why our <laughs> listeners are here. So. Oh, this, this, is, is, this isn't a parenting podcast? Sorry. <laughs> no, no. I guess we'll have to start a new one for that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so, 
Maybe let's start with what's the biggest lesson you've learned in the last uh, 25, 30 years that you, you know, you've been a leader? Sure. So I wrote a book called Management Mess to Leadership Success, and it basically was 30 challenges that every leader faces in their career. And after my 25 years with the Franklin Covey Company, 15 of them, you know, tutoring under the famous Dr. Stephen R. Covey, who, of course, wrote the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, I have learned the difference between being efficient and being effective, having an efficient mindset versus an effective mindset. He wrote the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Chris, not the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Efficient People, although a lot of people call it that by mistake. And I, and I am, Chris, naturally a very efficient person. I'm a very productive person, a lot of high as you can tell. I like to get things done. I'm the kind of guy that gets up at 4 a.m., writes my column for Inc. Magazine, I write a chapter of my books, I mow the lawn, wash the car, and now it's 7 o'clock, and I'm ready for breakfast. That has actually served me very well in my life, being a very efficient person. It's actually where most of my professional success is derived from, but the opposite is true, and that it also trips me up. Because when I try to move that efficiency skill set, that efficiency mindset, into my relationships, that's when it breaks down. So I think the biggest leadership lessons I've learned is when to be efficient, social media, texting, some email, maybe some meetings, washing the car, and when to be effective, which is generally in every engagement with other people. One of Dr. Covey's most famous phrases was, with people, fast is slow, and slow is fast. Yeah, and I think there's, if I'm understanding what you're saying, you know, I've met a lot of people that get a lot of things done. They cross off a lot of things on their list and check a lot of boxes and send a lot of emails, but they're not really getting me results, right? They're not, if, if they report to me and we're supposed to go from point A to point B, I can see the activity, but maybe I don't see the results. And yeah, I, think, I could, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Please finish. And and so I've had other people, right, that you, you don't really know what their activity level is. And maybe even that they even almost seem like their activity level is low, but yet the result is there. Right. They, they were able to get that meeting. They were able to get that client there. And, and I learned very quickly. All I care about is, are they effective? You know, are they yeah, getting that job done? However, that is. Yeah. And I, I don't need anyone to prove to me that they're really, really busy. But there yeah, are a lot of managers can, that are. So is that what you're saying or, or is there more to well, it that we need to look at deeper it's, here? It's partial. I think you've hit on a good point. Right. Is a lot of people mistake activity. For results, we have to all be very thoughtful around are we doing the highest leverage things for our organization, for our company. I think the big point I want to translate is a lot of efficient people where that skill set has served them well in their career, when they try to move that efficiency mindset into their relationships with their boss, with their coworkers, with their clients, with their vendors, their partners, their spouses, their mother-in-laws, their neighbors, their kids, they tend to be ineffective. You can't be efficient with people. You can only be effective. And if we believe, like I do, that people are not your most valuable asset, that that's actually bunk. It's the relationships, Chris, between your people in an organization that are your most valuable asset. So we've got to be more effective with our relationships and more efficient with our time, our activities and such. There's a time to be efficient, and then there's a time to move out of that, slow down, and be effective with our colleagues. 
Yeah, and that's probably true uh, for all of our relationships, right? I mean, it's, you, you said people, but and we have certainly the lens of work here, but I'm thinking that's great advice for anyone who's married. That's great advice for anyone who's a parent. That's great advice for, for anyone who has you know a friend that they haven't talked to in a long time that maybe they, they miss them. So uh, we can use that all the time, I imagine, in, in every part of our life. Well said. I mean, you know, like you and others, you know, I am a three-decade trained, you know, officer in a public company, chief marketing officer. I have an EVP role. I tend to err on the side of being efficient. When I come home, I've been, you know, metaphorically solving problems all day long, peeling the onion, getting to the root cause. I'm paid to solve problems as fast as possible. My wife does not want me to come home and solve her problems, right? If she's had an interaction that didn't go so well at Orange Theory with a group of her exercise friends, she does not want me to fix it. She wants me to slow down, move off of my narrative, move off of my need to solve it, and just listen to her and to validate her. You know, seeking to understand someone's challenge does not mean you agree with them. It just means you're showing empathy and you're doing your best to understand what it's like to be in their situation. It's easier said than done, but as Dr. Covey used to say, you know, common knowledge isn't common practice, right? Right. Well, one of the things that we are big proponents on in our culture is is listening, and and one of the first things that we talk to our new employees about, and 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 talk to our managers about all the time, so they can talk to their teams is, you know, to listen to understand, not to listen to respond. And you started to kind of kind of talk about that a little bit. And for us, that's like a big, big pivot point for people when they realize that they should be listening to understand what someone's saying and 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 what what goes in into that, right? To actually do that practice, you know, do you need to take notes? Do you need to give them good eye contact? Do you need to nod heads? You you know, what do you got to do to make sure someone feels understood and that you did understand them, um, as opposed to just listening to quickly respond. Uh, to someone. So I'm curious kind of your thoughts around listening and, and maybe you can kind of go a little deeper for us and talk about culture in general, right? If we sort of use that as our, our, our stepping stone here, you know, how is it you see us building culture and maintaining it and uh, I guess even screwing it up, right? So w- w- how do we take that lesson to maybe look at building the right culture, not screwing it up? Well, I think your point is so well said on leadership. Like you said, we tend to listen with the intent to respond, not to understand. It's natural. It doesn't mean you're a bad person or a bad leader. It means you are a person. It means you are a leader. We tend to listen on our own time frame, our own narrative, our own agenda, our own field of experience. So to your exact point, great leaders tend to be great listeners. And it's counterintuitive because most professionals have been taught how to communicate, right? How to be in persuasion mode, influence mode, selling mode. And when you're in those three modes, you're not listening, you're not building connections, you're not open to other perspectives. And as it relates to culture, you know, at Franklin Covey, we define culture as how the vast majority of people behave the vast majority of time, right? Very simple. And so if your culture is that people are, are blamers and they're gossipers, they're backbiters, they're finger pointers, that's your culture. If people are loyal to those who are absent. You know, another Dr. Covey quote is, you build trust with those who are present when you are loyal to those who are absent. When that's your culture, then people flock to your organization. And and leaders are the linchpins of every culture. We've heard about culture a lot. It's men vogue. But I'll tell you, 
every board of directors in the nation, every CEO, every chairman, top on their agenda every week, every month with their operating committee, with their executive team is talking about culture because people don't quit their jobs. People quit bad bosses and corrupt cultures. And, you know, prior to the pandemic, where you had 3.5% unemployment, and we'll move back there in the next couple of years at some point when we recover, people will have choices. People, you know, people vote with their feet. And so as a leader in any organization at any level, you have to be very thoughtful about how you build culture because you create culture as a leader, Chris, in every interaction, every email, every conference call, every Zoom or Skype call, every text, every time you walk down the hall back in the good old days when you were on your phone in an office and you were checking the 15 messages and emails that came in and you pass a new associate, don't look up, you create culture. So in every interaction, you're building it for good or for bad. Every time in front of a group when you disparage an associate or someone in another division, you create culture because you make it safe for people to do the same. So I think it's an enormous amount of responsibility on leaders in terms of their role to build and create culture. And I'll tell you, Chris, I'll take a second more. Not everyone should be a leader. It's why I wrote this book, Management and Leadership Success, because I think too often in organizations and in the industry of leadership development, we lure people to become leaders, not lead them. Not everyone should be an anesthesiologist. Not everyone should be a commercial airline pilot. Not everyone should be a dentist. Not everyone should be a leader of people because it takes a certain skill set, a certain desire, certain discipline. And I think it's okay just to be an individual contributor in certain parts of your career. So if you're going to be a leader, you have to acknowledge that you own the culture and you set the pace, right? You're the pace car, if you will, for the culture on your team in in your company. So, you know, there's always this, I think you're right, there's this pressure that, you know, if you've done well, if you're being successful, if you're going to progress in your career, that you must then become a leader. You must become now be in charge of people. And we often lose fantastic engineers or great salespeople or whatever this particular role is to now we want you to manage everyone else is doing this when that may not be where their strength is. That may not be where their passion lies. Um, but it's somehow the only way that they can progress or they can feel good about themselves or they can get that new title or that extra money or whatever it may be. So you nailed it, right? Is we, we too often are promoting individual producers. I mean, we often promote the top salesperson to become the sales leader. Well, there are very little skills that correlate in being a top salesperson and being the sales leader, right? I mean, I was the top salesperson. I was promoted. I was a horrible sales leader. I got better over decades But I think, you know, a leader's job is to understand that they need to get work done with and through other people. Let me repeat that. A leader's mindset, a leader's job is to get work done with and through other people. And when you believe that, Chris, when that that mindset, that paradigm, that belief system is deeply enculturated in you, you behave differently. You slow down. You coach. You mentor. You invest. You don't rush in and save the day. You don't have to be the smartest person in the room, right? You don't have to quote Liz Wiseman, be the genius, but rather become the genius maker of others. I think too often organizations, and quite frankly, the leadership industry has kind of developed this myth that everyone needs to be a leader. Yeah, everyone has leadership, meaning like lead a project or lead yourself. I just fundamentally don't agree that everybody should be a leader 
of people. And what I have seen is that uh, we use this concept of a part-time leader. So uh, we do see there's opportunities for a lot of people to take on a small leadership role in maybe on a team or a project or for a specific thing, instead of saying, well, you're either a salesperson or you're the head of sales, right? There's this huge difference in those two things. Instead of saying, geez, you can, you can be our, our salesperson, but we would love if you could do, if you could also just do, you know, 1% of your time, if you could be in charge of this other project, that's really important. And what I notice is that some people realize they definitely don't want to be in a leadership position all the time or long term. But I've also had other people who swore they never wanted to be a leader, but because they practiced being a leader a little bit and it wasn't their full time thing, they realized they were better at it than they thought they would be. And they learned and they got better. And then next thing you know, I have someone in my organization now who said she said she would never be a leader ever. She would never be at that position, would never be what she wanted to do. And that's where she is today because she kept doing small things, small projects, small teams and learned and got the confidence and then suddenly went, oh, maybe I do really like this. So I don't know if if you have any thoughts on that, that idea of sort of being a part-time leader, right? So we can ask people to be leaders sometimes without the threat (laughs) of you're going to have to be a leader all the time. I think it is so well said. I think your idea can be replicated because you took the pressure off, right? Is you set the expectation that this is an initiative. It's a short-term project so that anybody chooses to step away from it, they're not left holding an embarrassing, you know, bag, right, as a metaphor. But if they do like it and they step to it, then perhaps they might choose to stay on. I think it's very thoughtful of you. It's a great idea. Well, hopefully we can uh, you know, share this with more people. We, we sort of love to find good ideas. I think we've come up with a few. We've stolen most of our best ideas from, from so people, people like so yourself true. and other great companies out there that are sharing what's worked for them. And, and that's been a great source of, of inspiration for us. Maybe what are some of the new emergency, emerging competencies and ideas and things that you're seeing coming from other influential leaders? Well, I think one you just mentioned, Chris, right, is being a good aggregator. You know, you said you're borrowing. Same with me. I'm not sure I've ever had an original thought in my life, but I've become a pretty good listener. And I like to aggregate this from that organization, this from this article, this from this podcast. So I think you're doing a great service by modeling that. I would say is vulnerability. And this word is very much in vogue right now, but I mean it very genuinely. In this book, I shared, you know, 30 messes that I had in my career as a leadership expert supposedly, right, in a leadership capacity. And so I think vulnerability is a really 21st century leadership competency, leadership imperative. And here's what I mean, is as a leader, when you're willing to own your mess, hence the name of my book, then you make it safe for others to own theirs. Because we all have messes. I don't care if you're the chairman of the board of a Fortune 50 or you're, you know, the manager of a not-for-profit in, you know, in the Midwest, somewhere it's very small. All of us have messes. Our, 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 our colleagues know them, our associates know them, our employees talk about them. So if you want to set the standard that it's safe to own your mess, and you have to do it yourself, because when you do that, you make it viable for everyone to own their mess and to talk about them, not wallow in them, but to grow. So I think the new generation in the workforce, where the average tenure is like three years now, on the far side press, if you want to stretch that, have people stay, they need to relate to their leader. 
They need to be able to know that their leader isn't untouchable. This idea of having you know, multiple layers and formal authority, I think it's dying. Yes, there are leaders. Yes, you report to someone. Yes, someone can terminate you. But I think a new cultural mandate is people want to be able to relate to their leaders because they're bringing their whole selves to work now. Gone are the 90s where you had your personal life, then you had your far separate professional life. No, people are bringing their whole lives to work, right? Their kids are vaping, their grandparents are moving into dementia, they have bills they can't pay. By the way, I want my people to bring their whole work to life because I want to know them as a person. I want to help them. My job's not to be their therapist or their bank, but I think as a leader, when you're willing to be vulnerable about your own mistakes and share them, here's how I dealt with that. Here's you know a budget that I busted once or a timeline that I failed on. I don't think you lower the standard. I think too many leaders think if they show any cracks in their armor, then they are kind of creating license, giving permission for others to make mistakes. I think it's the opposite, Chris. I think if leaders are relatable and admit that they made mistakes, your team won't want to catch that shit in or they don't want to repeat your same mistakes. You give them a, you know, a, a, a sophisticated but appropriate level of empowerment, level of risk-taking – that creates for an entrepreneurial culture and company where everybody wants to work, especially the new generation flooding the workforce. Well, you've certainly been able to aggregate some great information uh, from lots of different people and your own uh, experiences. Uh, As you mentioned early in the show here that you worked uh, or did work with uh, Dr. Covey for 20 years or so, Uh, what were some of the greater insights that you learned from him? Well, I think the first is, is this concept of being loyal to the absent. I think the biggest culture, Chris, in every organization, and I, when I say organization, I mean school district, I mean house of worship, I mean Fortune 500, I mean country club. The biggest cancer is gossip. It's where people disparage others behind their back. So I think what Dr. Cubbs said, I mentioned before, how you build trust with those who are present is when you are loyal to those who are absent. Because if you're trash-talking Tina in front of me, what I'm thinking is, I wonder what Chris says about me when he's with Tina. So as a leader, whether you're a formal leader or you're informal, be very thoughtful about the standard that you set, right? Be a light, not a judge. Be a model, not a critic. These are things that I learned from Dr. Covey. Another, I think, profound insight he said was, You can't talk yourself out of a problem that you behaved yourself into. And this is Mm. such great advice for parents. It's great advice for anybody in a relationship. If you have made a mistake, now it's easy for Scott to tell Chris on a radio plug or a podcast, but don't try to talk yourself out of a problem you behaved yourself into. The only way to get out of it is to behave yourself out of it. And so I think as you look at broken relationships, where there is stress, where there's strife, where there's conflict, If you show an unprecedented level of humility, by the way, humility is a strength, right? Humility is born out of confidence. Confident people can be humble. Confident people can be vulnerable. Confident people can admit they're wrong, change their mind, offer apologies. These are not weak people. These are strong people. If you just think about your brand, if you were to to be more humble, share more credit, offer more apologies, take responsibility for your actions, admit when you're wrong, forgive others when they're wrong, or even take it a step further and pre-forgive them when they're going to do wrong, the level of influence you will create 
in hours and days will be unprecedented in your career. Well, and that's uh, fantastic advice. And I think we all could do that a little bit, even just do our best to try to do that more often. Uh, our our work would be a better place. Our lives would be better places. Our relationships would certainly be stronger. And we probably could, could as you said, behave in a way that would sort of undo some of our biggest frustrations in our lives. And I, just of all the things you said, I think, you know, forgiving someone in advance is probably we some of the most uh, uncomfortable and maybe unprecedented act that somebody might might even think to do if they were trying to implement any of these things, let's say later on today. How do you pre-forgive someone? How do you go into that experience knowing? And I think that takes a lot of empathy. It takes a lot of understanding of where that person might be and why they maybe went down the path they did and, and letting that part go and then using that as an opportunity to help them. Uh, get better or help yourself understand their situation better. Uh, but that's a uh, really, really great advice. Thanks. I think it's a cultural game changer, Chris, this idea of pre-forgiving. People are going to say the wrong thing. They're going to make a mistake. They're going to use poor judgment. I think they're bad people. doesn't mean they need to be terminated. I think, you know, I think there's a culture of, of a high level of sensitivity right now. I'm not a very sensitive person. I, I, you know, I, I am very much aware of my own biases and my own prejudices. I am working on them. And I think as leaders, if you anticipate people are going to make mistakes, they're going to say things that are rude, they're going to probably be embarrassed about it, they might not have the, the uh, emotional maturity or the emotional intelligence or, the, that matter, the emotional agility to understand it immediately and use the words to apologize, just pre-forgive people. And it doesn't mean that, you again, that you license culture that is a low level. You might need to later on walk back and say, hey, Chris, earlier in the meeting, you said something that I don't think you meant for it to be offensive, but I have to tell you, I think it was offensive to a few people, and I forgive you, and it's, you're totally fine, but I do think you probably should address that with them before it becomes a bigger issue. Now, some people might say, well, I just have to forgive. Well, that's actually not your position, right? You can't decide if I was offended. Only I can decide if I was offended. I think the, the mature leader is a person who leads out and uses these moments as coaching moments. I'll tell you, Chris, my biggest insight from Dr. Covey is I think there's two jobs of a leader beyond mission and vision and values and systems and structures and strategies. I think your number one job as a leader is to recruit and retain talent. In fact, talent that is even more palpably competent than you. I think the second most important job of a leader is to give people feedback on their blind spots, to move outside of your comfort zone, discuss the undiscussable, sit someone down, talk about their personal hygiene, talk about their lack of self-awareness, talk about their communication skills, their abundance mentality, their blames, whatever it is. Your second, perhaps biggest gift to anybody working with you, living with you, in the house with you, is to delicately, with both courage and diplomacy, give someone some feedback on their blind spots. Because they can't see them. You can see them. And then when they have a propensity to want to give you feedback on your blind spots, model what you want to see in them, right? Be open. Don't refute it. Don't dispute it. Don't deflect it. Don't do anything other than listen and to quote you earlier, perhaps write some things down, and then when they catch you, when they see you accepting feedback well on your own blind spots, 
they're going to remember that when you're going to give them feedback the next time as well. well and I'm really reminded about uh, this concept that I learned from Marshall Goldsmith, which was feed forward. And I think it really ties into what you were saying about forgiving someone in advance, right? Sort of taking this different approach. And if I might merge these two things together for a moment, you know, if we can give people feed forward, which is, hey, this is what I need from you in the future. This is what I need from you going forward. It's so much easier to have these discussions with people if they are, like you said, maybe it's a hygiene issue. Maybe it's a, they're, they're talking too much in meetings. Maybe they're interrupting people. Maybe they're being bullies and, and not allowing for a better conversation, whatever it may be, if we ask people to change their behaviors in the future, I find I almost always get a positive reaction. And sometimes I even get the insight from them as to why maybe that behavior has been occurring, because they then they're suddenly willing to talk about why they feel like they have to do this thing or talk this way or, or, or maybe talk too much in a meeting or what have you. And, and when we give people feedback, it's inherently negative. And unless somebody invents a time machine, they can't go back and change what they did. They can only change, I guess, that behavior that's coming up. So hopefully that helps uh, with how, how Scott framed it. Maybe maybe with how, what I learned from, from Marshall Goldsmith, that might help uh, those of you out there looking to, to have better conversations with your people. We're almost out of time here, Scott, so I want to give you the opportunity to have the last word. And, of course, please let us know how we can get a hold of you. How can people find out more about your work? your podcast, your book, all of that, please let us know how, how we can do that. Chris, the sign of a great radio station of podcasts is when the guest learns a lot from the host. So thank you for that today. I've learned a lot from you as well. You know, you can find me anywhere. Google Scott Miller, Franklin Puffy, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, connect with me. And the books that I've written, Management, Mass Leadership, Success, and the second book I wrote called Everyone Deserves a Great Manager. They're available on Amazon, bookstores everywhere. I'd love to have you connect or follow me on LinkedIn. Thank you so much, Scott, for being on the show. We'd love to have you come back at some point. We can keep the conversation going. Thank you, Chris. Have a great week. All right. We'll be live uh, next week, uh, June 30th, and we'll bring in, uh, we'll have some great uh, guests. Uh, let's see, Josh Levine, uh, Rebel Industries, and also, and he has the uh, Rebel excuse me, Rebel Radio Podcast, and then also Tony Giffen, CEO of Goodwill of San Diego. So until then, show the world how talented you can be today. You've been listening to Talent Talk Radio, brought to you by People G2.